This is the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, Episode 14. We are talking to artist Kylie Stillman. Hello and welcome to the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, a podcast for people curious about art and the lives of artists. In this episode, Senior Curator Danny Lacey talks to 2018 National Works on Paper finalist Kylie Stillman. Best known for her book sculptures and wood carvings, artist Kylie Stillman uses scalpel blades, jigsaws, sewing materials and drills to alter objects and create negative spaces that depict signs of life. Her inventive artworks draw from both modern art and craft traditions to transform ordinary materials into works of art. Kylie talks about the defiance of creativity, the genesis of her book carvings, and the idea behind her national works on paper piece, Just See. Thanks for joining us, Kylie. Thank you, Danny. I want to firstly ask you if you were creative growing up. Oh yeah, absolutely. But I often think all children kind of are, and they get it beaten out of them. And the artists, people that become artists are the ones that either didn't listen or didn't have that happen whether it's from having it encouraged or just from defiance. But my creativity was not so much from having a very arty or creative family, but having a mother that sewed. So I learnt to sew from a very young age and I really embraced that. And I think that that's really what's formed a lot of my thinking sculpturally and my ability to think in a certain way about how things are made. Hmm. And you studied painting at RMIT in the 1990s. What was this experience like and how did it influence or guide the beginnings of your art practice? I loved it. I really wanted to be there and I'd really fought hard to be there, almost to an embarrassing degree. I wasn't interested in going to university straight after high school. I knew I wasn't ready. Again, I didn't have a very arty background. I knew what I didn't know (laughs) and I liked the idea of the TAFE system. So I did a TAFE course, but I also was very pragmatic and knew that a future in art is not a very smart thing to do financially. It's a really challenging path. So I thought, well, I'll do graphic design. But the TAFE system was great because it allowed you to do something like graphic design, but you also would study fine art photography. And you also got a really great skill base. So I did ceramics and printmaking, cinema studies, and there was a really great art history component. It was really everything that you didn't get at high school because most high schools when I grew up in the suburbs weren't equipped for that kind of thing. I really wanted from then to do fine art. I knew I wanted to do painting. I had no folio for painting. It was all very, not so much commercially minded, but very a design-based folio. So it was very hard and it was a very competitive process to get into university. I got what was called a B letter. And a B letter means you're on a wait list. I accepted my B letter and I went on to do graphic design at Monash. I got an advanced standing place, so I got straight into second year, which was all very sort of satisfactory, but not really where my heart was. And after a particularly bad day in the first few weeks, I rang up RMIT University where I had my B letter. And I said, just out of curiosity, where I stood on this rare chance that I might be given a place. And I was 76th in the queue, which, you know, wasn't a very good odds. I said, well, look, just let them know I'm interested. Just put a highlighter pen over my name or something. And two days later, I got a call from the coordinator there saying that a student had deferred and there was a place available. And two days later, I was turning up at RMIT to study painting with no painting skills, no folio, but really wanting to be there and really having a good solid base of knowledge of art history 
And then when I was there, I was introduced to some incredible lecturers and a really diverse group of lecturers, half male, half female, some painters, some people worked in video, people worked in installation. No one worked in the same way. And I think that that sort of spread. It just really embraced what I wanted to make. That must have been pretty amazing to transition to RMIT and it must have been quite dynamic, I guess, and quite exciting to be in that new environment and to be learning different things or following where you felt like you needed to go? Yeah, definitely. It was a time of my life that I really loved and will always treasure. And it was the foundations for how I work today. Mm-hmm. So when did you first start making your sculptural book carving works? Did that start off at university at RMIT? It didn't. Uh, my first book works were immediately after I finished when I graduated. During my time at university, I mostly worked, even though I was in the painting department, and I still argue that what I create is grounded in painting, I didn't work with paints in terms of them being a pigment. In fact, I was always looking for other ways of making a mark that was alternative to paint. So that mark could have been different shades of toast that had been burnt or different ways that you could make grass altering colour by covering it from the sun or the idea of paint in itself and how it exists in the world. And a lot of these things are more of an ephemeral nature or more actually from just daily experiences with objects and materials. A lot of it's sourced from questioning the hierarchy of art and that art supplies and art materials and art skills are achieved in a certain place and bought from a certain store and come from a certain part of society. So it was having a bit more of a common grounding. So when I had, um, you know, you finish art school and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do in the world, I just looked at something like the Linden Art Prize. They're great sort of projects to take on. There was a maximum size requirement, which was something like an A4 size piece of paper. And I just thought about things that were that size and what I could work with. And again, not wanting to paint or make my own marks, I just was going to what I call an art supply shop, which is an op shop, and just finding materials there. I opened a book and there were some beautiful end pages that were coloured in a certain way, which was the grounding for the piece that I wanted to make. I then thought about things about the size of the book, what other things are that size, and what other sort of marks I could make. And I thought, well, if I cut into that book... I can use the text in the book. I can use that ink instead of adding my own ink. I can cut in a certain way that makes a shadow. I can do these things. And then I thought about, well, what could I put in there? What could add a certain additional meaning or reading? And I thought about a bird. A bird is that size. And I, you know, looked at an exact species of bird that was that size and then played on that reading of things being hidden or smuggled or transported in books. So that was the first genesis of these ideas and from there started to have always responded to spaces or the sizes of the sort of cavities that I'm working with, how I work with books or other materials. So that's when they evolved to being towers of books or walls of books or neat sort of slabs and things like that. Mm -hmm. And the technical skill required to plan and produce these works is pretty amazing. What is your process and what do you find the most challenging aspect to making these sort of works? With most things that I make, I avoid anything that requires outsourcing or anything of a particular skill. And by skill, I mean with the books, I'm simply working with a scalpel. I'm simply cutting page at a time. Apart from the time required to do it and the concentration, it's nothing of a particularly uh, specialist nature. The challenge that comes with working in that way and that a lot of artists have in working that way is the assumption that things are done by machine and comes from the time that we are living in now where the ideas of Photoshop are not new, things can be 3D printed, 
obviously photography is so ready at hand. A lot of things that are skills and that have been crafted for so many years are taken for granted or assumed are done in a different way other than an analogue way. So that is often the largest hurdle that I have is just having people understand that these are done by hand, but there's also, it's not being a Luddite. That is the sort of thinking that is going into the work and it is adding a reading by making things in that way. Mm. And I guess with the work that it's so meticulously detailed, I imagine that the viewer initially gets quite seduced by the technical dexterity of your work. But beyond this technical aspect, what are the broader conceptual ideas that your work explores? Yeah, there's lovely layers of the idea of the found objects and just reusing and repurposing things. So again, in looking at that breaking down of the hierarchy of art, and by that I mean that things are in a very precious, a very expensive, a very out of people's reach and are very unattainable, that there are things that can be art that are found in the everyday by working with things that are very common and that are, you know, around the house or that are, are discarded. There's just ideas of ethics in terms of how we use things and why we make things in a certain way and what we value and what we handcraft. That's from the materiality perspective. But then in terms of the actual content that I either carve or add to works, they're sort of more seeking ideas about space and ideas about growth and ideas about how things evolve and also just ideas about pace and what we look at and how we absorb things and how we frame things in our life. So I think that in a lot of cases I'm hoping that the spaces that I am removed are replaced with the thoughts of the viewer filling those spaces with the possibilities of what these things can mean to them or how they can find them in their daily life and get joy from them. Mm, yeah, well, I guess it's an interesting idea too when you're thinking about the books to remove a part of that. It leaves a space that then the reader has to somehow fill with their ideas or their sort of perceptions. And it's a nice play on using that word read. So to read a book in terms of the actual written word, but then to read a reading in terms of actually how to interpret it. Does the actual subject matter of the paperback books themselves have any thematic relationship to the final sculptures, or are they primarily the raw material behind the work? They are primarily the raw material. There's always quirky and there's always funny readings that come about just by accident. I don't try and be too controlling of that. It's nice when you put a pile of books together and just simply because they are the same size. There's often a theme anyway. You know, books of a certain size tend to be more um, textbooks and scientific. The smaller they get, the more pulp fiction-y they get and things like that. And there have been instances where more concrete poems have evolved just from titles or even like a haiku. But it's an accidental reading or quite random. It is about finding source material and it is about the more the textures and the even abstract patterns that occur from them. Also the idea of something that's in some ways changing in itself or has changed from when it was new, so the discoloration of the pages, the thumb marks that occur. When you stack a pile of books high, you start to read the thumb marks from how the book was opened and the residue left from the reader. So these are the sort of pigments that start to happen in found objects I find quite interesting. And where do you source your books from? I'm fortunate enough, especially nowadays, to be given a lot of books. There's been times when I've had, you know, a lot of support from people in legal professions and academics. No one likes to throw books away, which I can appreciate. And they do become obsolete. They do need to be either weeded out of collections or moved on. So I've been lucky enough to receive things that way. Mm. 
Your work, which is a finalist in the National Works on Paper exhibition, is called Just See. Can you talk about the idea behind this particular work? Well, to describe it, I call it a small piece. It's about 20 centimetres high. I think it's around eight paperback books that have been stacked into a little cube. I've cut into the fore edge just using a scalpel. And what it's revealed is two forms of marks. One mark, which is a stenciled text, and another mark, which is a less controlled hand-drawn pen mark. So what's occurring is the stenciled text spells out politically correct. It's done in a way that almost reminds you of garage sale signs or things that are done without a lot of planning. The word doesn't fit neatly across the width of the book. So the word political is broken up and correct is following it underneath. The idea of the stencil is something that's already got a size and a template of its own. So even when, and like I say, the example of the garage sale sign, you may find someone tries to make a sign, the last two letters don't quite fit on, so you make the letters smaller. In this instance, it's quite fixed. Over that, there's this hand-drawn scribbling, which is crossing out the word political and circling the word correct. So the title of the work, Just See, is playing on the acronym PC and instead just presenting it as just see. It's a piece that I guess you could look at it as being quite didactic, but I would like to have it looked at as being just this gentle reminder of what is either correct or what does it mean to correct yourself. And the nice thing about working with books, which as we know, are on this threshold of either becoming obsolete or being re-embraced because they are analogue and are still valued and do still have this lovely ability of not having to be plugged in (laughs) or powered, there's this threshold of things like how information and how language is evolving and always evolving, and that there's a particular place in time that we're at where even words like politically correct will not exist in the near future. It will just simply be correct how we are just catching ourselves saying things or reminding ourselves of what is a nice way that language evolves that is the way that we all grow. The way that the work's been made, however, is still cutting out these forms and these shapes. So it's still presenting the absence of these pen marks, which is really important to me as opposed to have just drawn it. It's that eating into the book. It's that stealing this pigment from somewhere else. But what it's doing as well is it's a piece that takes a long time to make, but it's um, marking out something that doesn't take a long time to make. To draw with a stencil and to do a hand-drawn scribble is something that's quite either unplanned and instantaneous. But by me slowing down the process and individually cutting each page and mapping it out and having what's almost an absurd amount of time put into something that is showing something of haste and almost unplanned is creating this sort of dualistic thought process. And I guess it's that thing about bringing it back to the viewer and having them enjoy a moment of thinking, think about where they stand on the idea of correction, evolution of language how things are made, how things are read, how we listen and how we look. And it's a piece that I've just really enjoyed making and that found it's at a particular point in time that yeah, has come together to do these things that I hope comes across when people look at it. Your practice is quite expansive, incorporating a range of materials, embroidery, found objects, books and timber. How do you choose which materials to select for each individual project? In most cases, it's responding to if it's a project, it's the size of the project. I like to argue that it doesn't matter what I'm working with, it's still the same stroke that I'm making or it's still the same concept that I'm working with. 
it still comes back to wanting to do things that I can do myself. So I've struggled with coming up with concepts that have been beyond my own scope, whether it be when I'm working with timber, I can still work using a jigsaw. It's not requiring a laser cut. It's not requiring a CNC machine. It's not requiring a skill set that's beyond what I can do in my own humble studio. Again, I enjoy that because I'm hoping that is what is keeping the viewer connected to something that they can see making themselves. And it's also nice to, as a practitioner, if you have the opportunity to alter the scale that you're working with, because it gives you a break as well. There's times when you can take on large projects and, you know, you just, you want to get something finished more quickly just to get the reward. So sometimes it's good when you're working on a large scale or with things that are quite laborious to be able to just pick up needle and thread and do a simple sketch or drawing or work in that way. Hmm. And you have not so long ago moved down to Frankston and have your studio set up at home. What are the practicalities of making work from your home studio and how has the move affected your practice and process, if any? Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs, not far from Frankston. I've always lived in the suburbs and that's an interesting thing for an artist. It's not often a place for artists, but a lot of artists live in the suburbs. You miss out on a lot of things. You're not around art openings as much. And, you know, you have to really pick and choose what you get to see unless you're wanting to commute into the CBD a lot. But it's a great place to work because you often have a lot of space and you have a lot of luxury in that regard. I've always had a studio at home and that's come from immediately from finishing university, going and getting a job. And I would work in the morning. I would get up at 5am and work in the studio before I'd go to work. It was the only way that you could get things done and still maintain a, um, an income. And by doing that, you're not creating three places that you're commuting to each day. You're not going to work and then heading to the studio late at night. It gave that sort of flexibility. And so I've just always maintained that. But I've been lucky uh, since moving to Frankston. The studio space that I have is outside of the house, so it's got that slight separation, but you don't have to go on a long journey to be there. It's a lovely place to be. I moved here for personal and family reasons, which is what's working for me at the moment. So what I miss out on in the um, being able to attend a lot of things and travel a lot, it's sort of made up for, for the headspace that I'm in to make work. Mm -hmm. And finally, what advice would you give to artists who are just starting out? Uh, yeah, it's really hard to know how things have changed and what's relevant now. And my advice probably sounds really old-fashioned. But I think being able to find work that you enjoy to support your practice is something I would advise. Because if your practice is purely non-financial, you have so much more freedom in what you make. And you will be surprised by what comes back when you produce work that is purely from a, a non-commercial perspective. And it does give you enormous freedom. And I think that you can often see work that is trying to fit a market. And if you're making work that's just purely coming from you and you're being yourself and you're not concerned about making an exhibition for it to sell, then you're more likely to produce something that's of great worth and great interest to people. And I think that that's certainly more rewarding. Well, thanks for joining us today, Kylie, and congratulations on being a finalist in this year's National Works on Paper. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode 14 of our conversation series. Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery is the region's major cultural facility, 
and is supported by Mornington Peninsula Shire and other partners. Visit mprg.mornpen.vic.gov.au to find out about our latest exhibitions and events. Our 2018 podcast program is supported by the Gordon Darling Foundation. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode.